Hello, and welcome to the History of Cologne, this time with a special Q&A bonus episode. You, the community, submitted questions, and here are the answers to them. What inspired you to start your podcast? This is a good question, and I think I will say this all the time, that I will say that this is a good question. <laughs> well... My first thought was that Germany is known for the big cities like Berlin and Munich, especially the last one with the Oktoberfest. And Cologne is also famous for international tourists, but most tourists, in my opinion, just hop off the tour bus, then they take a picture of the cathedral, and then they step back on the bus and drive further to Berlin or even Munich. And Cologne has so much else to offer. It's over 2,000 years old, I always tell you this in the intro of each episode, and Cologne was already a real player in Roman times and then a really big player in the Middle Ages. Cologne has the oldest square stone building north of the Alps. Regardless of Germany's past history, Cologne has the oldest still existing Jewish community north of the Alps, despite all the bad things that happened to them, especially 80 years ago. The flag of the state of modern Israel was designed here in Cologne at the Neumarkt. With Cologne Cathedral there was once the tallest building on this earth in this city and there are 12 Romanesque churches that are even way older than Cologne Cathedral itself, one of them dating back to Roman times. And You see I digress but all these facts that I just told you I think those are stories that must be told and should not be kept in the dark. How many languages do you speak? Well, first of all, I can speak German. Ich spreche Deutsch. Maybe you can understand that, maybe not. And um, English, I hope. Because then I have no idea where all those hundreds of listeners come from if they can't understand me. Then a little bit of Dutch because I am half Dutch, and I say this now in their language. It spelled me, Mike, kann nicht heel goed Nederlands praten. Uh, goed genoeg, omdat ik uh, kan in de restaurant gaan en ik zeg een biertje alsjeblieft. That's my Dutch, sadly. Ah, but I'm always trying to get back on track. My Dutch is really very simple, and it's based on my child memories that... I have, because most of my Dutch relatives, well, they don't really exist anymore because of several reasons. And then um, if you don't have anyone to talk except my one family member that is still Dutch, then you forget a language, sadly. But I can really understand it pretty well. If I watch um, a Dutch TV show, most of the time, if they don't have a, a local accent or don't just say all the time, then I'm really able to understand what they're saying. And if I read Dutch, I can understand nearly every word. And to add something else, my top five listeners are, well, in the English version, the United States. Then I think already Germany, because some Germans really like to hear stuff in English as well. 
then the UK, New Zealand, Australia, and on the fifth or sixth place is already the Netherlands, so my Dutch brothers and sisters, so dankjewel. Then, of course, a little bit of Italian, because um, to pass my history degree, I had to have another language, and Dutch didn't count, and well, I'm not good in Dutch anyhow. So I took an Italian class, and I think it's on level A2. If you compare it with this international language degree thing, I have no idea how you really how you really call that. And yeah, I can also say something in Italian. Mi dispiace che non bello in parlo in lingua italiana. I hope this was making some kind of sense in Italian. La bottiglia sul tavolo, the bottle is on the table. That's easy to say in Italian. And if that counts in any kind of way, I can read and translate Latin. Well, not like Julius Caesar did, but with a dictionary, I think I can translate nearly everything in Latin because I had to. I had to learn that in uni at university and pass a test in it, which I did. And so I got my bachelor's and master's degree in history. How many times have you visited the top of the Cologne Cathedral? As you know, Cologne Cathedral has two big main towers and one smaller tower in the middle. You can actually, officially, you can only access the southern big tower. You know, you can go underground to Cologne Cathedral and then there's an entrance and you can walk all the stairs up, which all tourists or most of the tourists do, and you can go all the way up to the tower. But I've been also to the northern part of the tower during an internship that I did as a student many, many years ago, I think 15 years ago. And it's really interesting because the northern tower serves as a department for uh, stones they want to put up there to replace all the stones that decayed over time. It's really interesting. And in the middle of the tower is a very small, uh, the northern tower, is a very small elevator. And if you can't deal with heights, then working at Cologne Cathedral is not a good job for you. Then you can uh, book tours, but you have to do that many, many weeks or even months in advance. You can also do that if you're not German-speaking to um, go on top of the roof of Cologne Cathedral. Once you enter the world of the rooftop of Cologne Cathedral, you will be surprised that it doesn't look like a medieval church up there. It more looks like a 19th century factory building. And this is really what it is. They made the rooftop out of steel. And in this way, the church survived the firebombs of World War II, while the cathedral in Paris, Notre Dame, had still its medieval wooden rooftop. But yes, the question was how many times have you visited the top of Cologne Cathedral? So there are three ways you can visit the top as a normal tourist that I mentioned before. That I've done maybe four or five times. I think the last time was in 2015 when I had a friend from the US coming over as a guest. But dozens of times, just doing my internship as a student and several times with private guided tours, I've been on the Northern Tower and the Rooftop Tower as well. Do you ever give guided tours of the city? 
Yes, I've done guided tours of the city, but just for friends or working colleagues for free and maybe they gave me a few Kölschbier and a free lunch or dinner after that, but never being as an official guide who gets money for that and works for a company or as a free businessman. No, I haven't done yet. But I actually plan on doing this for real someday, but I haven't totally planned it out yet. My goal is to do one next year, and I'll let you know if you're in the area that you can participate in that. What you should not forget, the market in Cologne concerning guided tours is quite competitive, and there are really, really the craziest offers that you can do if you want a guided tour in Cologne Besides the classic tour, like having a guy that tells you this stone means this and this church means that, and or you hop on a bus and out of speakers comes in some intervals, hey, you see now this and now you see that. You can actually do anything like a pub crawl, which a witch tour, a boat tour, but also, oh, I have to look at my notes, sorry. You can do guides with serious topics like visiting places of the Nazi time or places where people vomited, I guess. So for me, designing a guided tour, I really have to find my niche and I am not quite clear that. Maybe you have some ideas how I can achieve that. What's the origin of the Kölner Klüngel? Yeah, I think for some listeners... We have to explain what is the Kölner Klüngel, the Cologne Klüngel. So what it basically means is a unique system which is nepotism between city politics and local businesses and companies. And I know we often make fun of this nepotism in Cologne and many would call it corruption, but it's way more complicated and... I have an honest opinion about the Kölner Klüngel, the Cologne nepotism, which might seem odd at first hand. I think every city has nepotism like this. It's just that we Cologne residents have no illusions about it and call a spade a spade. So how did it came about that Cologne has such nepotism? Well, for the history of Cologne, as a free imperial city in the Middle Ages, the power in Cologne was distributed not only on one person or one council, but on many, many shoulders among the wealthy, most of the male citizenry, and later also among the important professional groups. And this, all of this required good coordination and agreement within the society of Cologne. And this gave rise to those cliques that have lasted up until today and the mentality. And I'm going out on a limb here, but this has often meant that the city's problems and challenges that Cologne faces have usually been solved very efficiently and effectively right up to the recent past. An anecdote, for example, that shows how efficient this kind of Kölner Klünge, Cologne nepotism can be is an anecdote from the 20s how the city council approved a major building project in the 1920s. The vote in the city council was just over when the mayor, Konrad Adenauer, personally set out to go directly to the building office and speed up the bi- <laughs> I hate this word as well. 
bureaucracy. Once there, he said, here, go ahead and issue the building permits. And he got the building permit instantly. Instead of the whole building project first being examined by the city administration in peace and order, and maybe it's taking more than several years, and you know what happened at the end of the 20s, the big uh, Great Depression came, and maybe this big project had not been started at all if we had wa waited very longer. Nowadays, however, the Kölner Klünger, the Kolonepotism, the term tends to have negative connotations. The one cologne banking scandal from the early 2000s and the illegal construction of a waste incineration plant alone are a sad highlight in this regard. Or not only the banking scandal, in one case a psychiatrist became the head of the supervisory board of the Cologne airport. He had no qualifications only the right political connections. You see, it's pretty hard for me, not because it's in English here as well, it's really hard for me to explain why the Kölner Klünger, the Kolonepotism system, wasn't always that bad as it is nowadays. It really sounds like I'm in favor of something like a mafia or something. I'm not. It was, it was not like this nepotism could lead to corruption, but in most of the times... This system sped up things like, hey, I help you, and you didn't get something in return. It was like, a, like an account you had. If you had helped someone several many times, then maybe someone else would help you because you were known to be very helpful to others. If you know what I mean. It's not like the typical corruption, like I give you $100 and you give me the permit to build a building. It's difficult to explain and I hope, if we ever get there to the Kölner Klüngel in the course of this podcast, maybe in the late Middle Ages, that I have more space to elaborate more on that topic. But for now, I hope I could give you a short summary about the Kölner Klüngel. Anything about the witches or spooky stuff for Halloween? As you know, Cologne has a lot of myths and legends. So there are several spooky stories as well, and we already dealt with those stories in part, like the blood column in the church of St. Gerion that kills people who are sinful, and you just stare or look at it, and you die, because, well, the stone notices if you are a sinner or not. I looked at that stone and I survived, so good for me. Then we have already talked about the Rich Modes saga on Instagram, but never person has asked about this legend, so we will come to that later. And another famous legend that is really spooky is about the first master builder of the Cologne Cathedral, the nowadays Cologne Cathedral, and his pact with the devil, and I don't want to spar that. We will get to that topic in some time in the course of this podcast, so I will not tell you this story as well. But everything I've told here as I said, I will tell in the course of the podcast. But there is a story that is not so common and still there and really still existing. And it haunts me personally every time I think about it. This is the Haus Fühlingen. The Haus Fühlingen is a ruin of a mansion in Cologne's north at a rural road, not far away from where I grew up. 
It was built in the late 19th century by a wealthy Cologne citizen. It is a place where the medieval battle of Worringen in 1288 had occurred, the largest night battle of the German Middle Ages, and yes, we will come to that topic when we will get to it in the course of this podcast. But what really started the story that the house is haunted is the story about a ghost of a forced laborer from Poland named Edward. Edward got killed in 1943 during the Second World War by the Nazis when it was found out that he and the daughter of the owner had fallen in love together. And you know how racist the Nazis were? I mean, they are the racists. They are the definition of racism. And learning that a German has intercourse or love affair with a Polish man, that was of course not in there. That was not something they would tolerate. So they killed that poor Polish man. The owner caught the Gestapo, the secret police of the Nazis, and Edward was killed on the spot there on the property of the mansion. The daughter that really existed after the war said that she never had a romantic relationship with that man and that the owner just wanted, or her father, so to speak, wanted just to kill this man. It is said that Edward's ghost haunts the house since then, looking for his love and, of course, seeking revenge. After the war, a former Nazi judge lived in the house with his family, and on New Year's Eve 1962, so a few years after World War II ended, this Nazi judge is found hanging from the ceiling of the second floor. Until the year 2000, one of the family members, an old lady, still lived in it until she died of a natural death. But since then, this mansion was empty. Several people have killed themselves in it. In 2007, for example, a man hanged himself at the exact same spot where once the Nazi judge had been hanging. The court police and first responders came to the conclusion that it was suicide. But so-called ghost hunters often notice the smell of decomposition while walking through at night, or the smell of pipe tobacco. Some even heard loud bangs while they were trespassing. And two people even proclaim that they have seen the ghost and that he shoved them down the stairs, causing them both to go to the hospital. And there are several videos on YouTube that exist where people trespass the building and I cannot watch a minute of that video. It's really of these videos. It's really really disturbing. And the house looks really disturbing. I don't think I have a picture of it. Maybe I could create an, a special companion post for this episode, for this bonus episode. And then you can look at that house and decide um, for yourself if you want to ever go there. If you happen to be in the area. Who is your favorite character from Cologne history? Yeah, what is my favorite character from Cologne's history? First of all, I know roughly the whole history of the city of Cologne, but I think that maybe I will still stumble about someone that I find very interesting. But from this point of view, where we are at right now, here at the end of the early Middle Ages, just a short answer, probably Roman Empress Agrippina. I still believe it's quite a miracle that she, as a woman in a very male society, that of the Romans, that she achieved to be the Empress of the Roman Empire. 
and that she got so powerful as no woman after her or before her during the history of Rome. So, this is my short answer. Roman Empress Agrippina. And why? Well, then we listen to my episode about Agrippina if you want to. Does the legend of the Richmodus have any truth to it? Well, first of all, maybe we should talk about what the legend of Richmodus actually is, because I don't think that all of you guys know what the legend about Richmodus is, because I just talked about it very shortly in some stories on Instagram, maybe one year ago or half a year ago. So the story in very short, because we will talk about that story in the course of the podcast as well, is, is like this. In 1357, a plague hits Cologne and many, many people die from it. It's the time of the Black Death, as you know it from your history books in that talk about that time in Europe. And also one among of the dead is a lady called Richmodes. And she lives in a fancy house at Neumarkt, a ver- the biggest square in nowadays Cologne still. And because of there's so many dead in the city. Some say that like every fifth Cologne citizen died in that time. She is not buried uh, immediately, but her body is kept in the nearby church of St. Apostel, St. Apostles at Neumarkt. That is still there and you can visit that church if you want to. Well, so, Richmodes lies in the church and her burial is prepared. Her husband or is a widow now and he sits at home and is crying because he he really loved his wife and what miraculously happened when the grave digger comes into the church uh, he has some very um, unmoral intentions he wants to plunder the dead bodies because many of those uh, bodies nobody wanted to touch them and he has no problems with doing that because he is the guy who buries people and he looks if people are still wearing golden rings or jewelry or something like that and as he approaches uh, Richmodes and wants to take away her jewelry after all she was a rich Cologne citizen Richmodes awakens and the the guy he really gets scared and runs off because he thinks that some kind of dark magic is happening so Richmodes awakes and notices that the church doors are still open and she walks outside and she's like, you know, she's still wearing her clothes and all and she goes to her nearby house where she used to live and it's in the middle of the night and you have to imagine in the Middle Ages there was no street lights at all. It was really pitch black dark back then. So she knocks at the door of her mansion and the the guy at the door What's that called in English? The guy who... Portier, it's in German or in French. But the guy who is uh, watching the, the guard, let's call him the guard. The guard at the door uh, opens the window and, and asks, who wants to come in? And she says, don't be stupid, I'm Richmodes. I live in this house, let me in. And the guy says, no, Richmodes is dead. Go away and beg somewhere else for money or food or shelter. But Richmodes, well, insists and she says, call my husband, he will recognize me and then he will let me in. So the guard really wakens up the husband of Richmodes and says, hey, there's a woman out there who thinks that uh, she is Richmodes, your wife. And the guy, 
the husband says, "That can't be true. My wife is dead. Rather, two horses will run up the tower of my house than that my Richmodus is still living." And he had just finished the sentences that two horses from a stable broke out and they ran up the tower, which is very unnatural that horses run up the tower because how are they supposed to go down there? Because horses don't like to go backwards, if you know what I mean. But when that happened, the husband of Richmodus knew that Richmodus was still alive and they lived happily ever after. And that is the legend about Richmodus. But yes, the question was, is there any truth in it? And we have to say the saga was first written or recorded in 1650, so nearly 300 years later. But it is certain that there was a plague wave in the year 1357, and there's documentary evidence that there was a plague epidemic in Cologne around that time, as I said. On October the 2nd, for example, in 1358, the Archbishop of Cologne, Wilhelm von Gennep, intervened against falsifications of wills related to plague deaths. So you see what I mean. Many people were proclaimed deaf. Uh, many people were proclaimed dead so that other people could get their stuff, you know, as a, to inherit it falsely. So that is really true. The plague, the plague existed at that time. And people try to declare other people for dead so they could get their riches or their property. But if that woman named Richmodus really existed, I have no idea. And maybe sometimes it's good that some things are not clear about legends. What is your favorite weird or funny history moment in Cologne? About this question, what is your favorite weird funny history morning cologne? I had to think about a little bit, but then I read on a blog about cologne history, Kölschgänger, a really great page, you should go there if you can read German. I read a really nice anecdote that happened in the year 1926, so in the time between the First and Second World War in Cologne. So on the Rhine, South of Cologne, a ship with an attachment barge with 100 wine barrels floats down the Rhine. The barge has no own drive or engine that is still usual at that time. The plan is to detach the barge from the ship so that the barge drifts into its final destination at the place where it should be. But the ship accidentally casts its anchor. So... The ship turns in the middle of the Rhine and the barge slams against the pillar of the southern bridge of Cologne. Meaning now that the load, the wine barrels, all fell into the Rhine River. That happened at noon and the barrels did not sink but floated down the Rhine passing Cologne downtown and reaching the northern quarters of Cologne. There... The Rhine makes a very sharp turn and fishermen in the northern city quarter of Neil, that's the name of it, hear of this and they want to help. They want to help to recover the barrels and hand them back to the owner because he asked them to do so. But the citizens that lived in Neil, the people, see this and 
they all start jumping into the water. The local police even calls for reinforcements and even a police riding squad on horses arrive, but they are not able to master the situation. In the end, not only the normal people, but also the police, walk to the Rhine River and drank the wine out of these barrels, causing the biggest wine festival that this quarter has seen ever since. Approximately 4,000 liters of wine, or like a thousand gallons of wine for you Americans, were drunk this day and the days after. Many of the barrels had been damaged, so the quality of the wine must have been not that great, but hey, it was free. I had problems really choosing this story because you ask for my weird or funny story moments, which, well, there's one thing that was not so funny about this story, because the Rhine River, even though it gets slower there at the turn in the north, so that's how the people could get those uh, barrels up, because the Rhine River flows slower at that place, but still the Rhine is not just a little creek. There is a reason why the Romans, 2000 years ago, venerated this river as a god, meaning five people died that day, trying to jump into the Rhine to receive the barrels, and they drowned. What is your favorite historic place in Cologne, and why? My favorite historic place in Cologne, you might have guessed it, even though it's pretty simple, is Cologne Cathedral. Like no other place here in Cologne, you can see here under the cathedral and direct surroundings the entire history of Cologne in one place. You can see in the underground Roman times, you can see the Middle Ages up to the World War and today. Unfortunately, you just have to open your eyes and know where to go beforehand. Or you just see a cathedral with a big concrete square. But for that you have me. Sorry, I just had to get up because my delivery of six donuts arrived. So I had to get that. Maybe you heard my doorbell. What are the main features of Roman clothes or uniforms? I saved this question for the end. That's really hard to answer because we are talking about a time span of around 1,300 years and uh, to put it that simply, they had more in common than it differed from each other. Men usually wore a shirt and um, yeah, and sandals and if it if they were cold, they had just um, cloth wrapped around their legs. Later, in late antiquity, they even put on trousers, which, first of all, they thought were barbaric, because only the Germanic people used them. But hey, nowadays we all wear shorts, um, trousers. It also really depended on the climate situations, because I think here in the Rhineland, it was a little bit too cold most of the times just to wear a shirt and nothing more. I think the Romans will have adapted the clothing styles of the regions they had conquered. And for women it was nearly the same. They wore a shirt and that was going down until their ankles. Yeah, so much for that. I'm not really an art historian. Maybe I will look that up and put it on this bonus episode companion post for you. So that was my spontaneous Q&A episode. 
for some questions you might have noticed I had some sentences written down because some answers were more complex but I still try to answer them on the spot without thinking too much beforehand so I hope that I did not put too many pauses into this episode while I was thinking and the gears in my brain were moving. I hope you really liked this episode. We can do this more often, but for that I need more questions. Maybe in half a year we can continue or repeat this episode. But for now, let's end here for today. In nearly two weeks we have the next episode about the Vikings visiting Cologne, so to speak. And I hope you will all be there to listen to it. So thank you very much. Recommend me further. I hope you learned something about me or about history. Feel free to contact me on every platform that is available here and you can find all of that in the show notes. So thank you very much. Recommend me further and auf Wiedersehen.